messages that uh, we have been studying as a faith family when we've been coming together. Um, many of them, it seems like they just flow seamlessly into one another. For example, just, for, just say for example, uh, we saw King Herod, and King Herod was throwing a great banquet. After he throws his great banquet, it transitions just seamlessly into the fact that Jesus, who is the King of Kings, throws a banquet as well in the wilderness. And when he is done throwing that, he, he goes and he sends his disciples away across the sea. And as they're out at sea, they're in trouble. And Jesus then walks on the water, comes to help them. And then after he rescues them, the Bible says that they entered and they, they came to the other side of the sea. And there Jesus gets out and continues his healing ministry among the people. So it's just we've been studying different parts of just one big narrative, one big ongoing story. But when we get to chapter 7, there seems to be kind of like this hard break. All of a sudden, everything that we've been learning about just kind of seems to go away. And now, now, now Mark goes in a completely different direction. Here's why. Up to this particular point, Mark has been just really teaching on Jesus' ministry primarily to the Jewish people. Everything he's done. They're in Capernaum. They're in, in, um, in Galilee. Almost all Jewish people he's ministering to. Now, he's going to change course. And now, he's beginning to broaden his ministry to include not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. So, over the next couple of weeks, we'll see Jesus perform three different miracles there amongst the Gentile people. So, this particular passage before us this morning really serves as a place of transition, but it really does something far more dramatic and important. What it does is it teaches on something that is absolutely vital for the life of every person in here, because what it teaches and what it brings up is the issue of authority for life. What is our authority? How do we go about determining what is right and what is wrong? How do we determine what we're supposed to do or what we're not supposed to do? Where do we get that information? And what we find in the text of Scripture is that authority comes to basically two primary places. It either comes and is the Word of God or it's the traditions of men. And so here we have in this passage, we see Jesus and his disciples clinging to the Word of God as the ultimate authority of their life. And then here we have another group of people, the Pharisees, the religious folks, those folks that seem to know it all, and they are clinging as their greatest authority, the traditions of men. And so what I'm hoping that we'll do is as we work through the text of Scripture this morning, verse by verse, it's kind of how we do it, I don't know any other way, uh, forgive me, and as we work through that what I hope to do is in our heart of hearts at the end of the service that we will look and keep in mind and ask ourselves, God, what is my authority? What is the authority that I live by? What is the authority that I live by in my own life and raising my family? What is the authority that I live by in, in, in our home and our work? What is the authority for, and also, and very importantly, what is the authority, what is our greatest authority here at Celebration Baptist Church? What are we to follow? God's word? Or man's tradition. And so keep that in mind. Now let's, let's begin first of all in verse 1. The Bible begins here. It says now when the Pharisees gathered to him. And some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. They saw that some of the scribes ate with hands that were defiled. That is unwashed. Earlier in Mark, Mark chapter 3 and verse 22, we saw that Jesus, as he was performing miracles, that there was this little delegate of sin-sniffing scribes that hear about Jesus, and they leave Jerusalem, and they come to see what Jesus is all about there in Capernaum. And as they're watching him, they see some things that are greatly disturbing. 
They see him casting out demons, and their conclusion is this. He must be a false teacher because he's, he's, he's casting out these demons by the power of the devil. So that was their conclusion. Well, now the sin sniffers are at it again. They're, one, they're watching Jesus very carefully, making sure that he's doing everything right as he should, and they begin seeing something that they do not think is right, that they think is off. And, accor- and what they think is that his disciples are eating food with undefiled hands. That means that they were unwashed. Now, what's going on here? Surely this is more than just them becoming upset uh, because of an issue of them being unsanitary. Now, we all need to wash our hands, right? We need to do that. We don't want to get sick. We don't want to pass any germs. It's good and it's unsanitary not to wash our hands. But something bigger is going on here. And to understand why they're upset, you really have to go back to the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, God had provided for his people a series of laws that deal with being cleansed, cleansing and ceremonial cleansing rituals uh, for priests primarily to minister before God in the temple. So back in Exodus chapter 30 and Exodus chapter 40 and Leviticus chapter 22, all of those, they really lay out all of these very uh, important laws by God that the priest was supposed to follow before he went into the tabernacle and into the presence of God so that he would be clean before God. So very important. But most of the laws in the Old Testament and in the book of Leviticus, very few of them really deal with each individual and the washing of their hands, the common Jewish person. There are some And really, basically, you can boil it down to this. In Leviticus chapter 15 and verse 11, there it basically, for every Jew, what they needed to do was every time they came into contact to any kind of bodily discharge, we'll not go into detail there, any kind of bodily discharge, whatever, you pick your poison, whatever it is that you need to go and you need to wash your hands. That was the instruction of the word of God. But what's happening here is, and this is how you can kind of read through the the, the line, between the lines. What's happening is Jesus and his disciples do not believe that they have committed any transgressions against the law. They see no need to be able to go and wash their hands. They apparently didn't come into any kind of contact to any kind of bodily discharge. So they just go ahead and they begin to eat without ceremonially washing their hands. But in the eyes of the Pharisees, they become angry because they believe that something seriously wrong is going on. They believe that they have broken the law, that they have, and they are indeed guilty of sin. Now, to understand this, we have to step back a little bit more and understand the context of what's going on. At the close of the Old Testament, God's people begin to become inundated and surrounded by Greek culture. And all of a sudden, what they do is, here's a group of people that have always been taught, hey, get away, be separate, be holy, don't be around them. And now, of no fault of their own, they're being surrounded by this Gentile nation. And so, this issue of being clean becomes very important. And so, what they begin to do is, in order to be able to live practically throughout the life and remain clean before God, they begin to add to God's commands, no longer is it, is it that you're supposed to just stay away from any kind of bodily discharge or wash afterwards. Now they've got you washing all the time for everything. Now the list includes uh, touching a woman after childbirth, 
corpses, birds, creeping things, idols, certain classes of people. Here's the shift. Even now whole groups of people are now considered to be unclean where you need to wash your hands after touching them. People like the lepers, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles. Now, here's the interesting thing. Once we hear this new list, we begin to understand what's gotten all up in the crawl of the Pharisees because Jesus has been doing everything and touching everything that's on their list. Jesus, throughout the first seven chapters there of Mark, he's, he, he's, he's come in contact with a leper, with Gentiles. He's come in contact with a menstruating woman, and he's come in contact with a dead body. Jesus has laid hands on all of these things. They've been watching them, and now they're going to eat, and no washy-washy. So this is a big no-no in their eyes. Now, understand something. Their idea and what they're thinking goes well beyond just matters of regular hygiene. This is not just, hey, you don't want to catch a disease. Certainly, that's part of why God gave some of the laws to be able to protect us through those things. But there's something far more significant that's going on here. See, what they believed was this, is that if you were to touch something or someone that was considered unclean, according to God or according to their list, then what would happen is your hand would become unclean, okay? And then once your hand became unclean and then you would touch your food, then your food would become defiled and would become unclean. Then when you ate that food and it went in you, you yourself then would become unclean. And I'm not talking about germs. What I'm talking about is spiritually defiled before God. That your heart now was somehow corrupted, that sin had somehow saturated you from the outside coming inward, and now you couldn't have a right relationship with God. So you can understand why this would be so serious, right? You can understand why they were so diligent and making sure that they were washing their hands every opportunity they got. But it went beyond washing hands. All of a sudden, then people begin to ask other questions. Well, what if somebody touches my back? Well, what if somebody falls down and hits my foot? What if someone steps on my foot and it's an unclean person? Then what do I do? Washing my hands isn't going to help. And they're like, okay, well, let's come out with another set of rules. That's what we need. Let's just keep adding to the list. So what they find is sometimes if they were amongst a large group of Gentiles, then they would just bathe the whole body. In fact, and I asked this earlier, would any of you like to go to Israel with me one day? Would that be cool? Take a little trip to Israel. We'll all go. If you save $9 million, we'll go, okay? And, but, but love to be able to go, be able to show you things. Things really become alive. But if you were to go there and you were to go and, and, and be blessed enough to be able to find an archaeological dig of a first century Jewish home, you would find a set of stairs somewhere within the home kind of going down, and it's not leading to a basement. It's leading to a mikvah, which is basically a ceremonial cleansing bath. And so what they would do is when they were around too many Gentiles, too many unclean people, they would go and they would cleanse their whole body to make sure, once again, that they weren't defiled before God. You guys tracking with me? You guys with me so far? So he's moved. So, so here's the idea. Mark understands that the people that he's writing, who's he writing? A group of Romans. They don't understand all of this Jewish, these Jewish ways. So he begins to explain to them there in verse 3 what this is all about. In verse 3 he says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding not the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, what he's doing here is he mentions that, hey, it's gone well beyond just washing of the hands and washing of the body. Now it's washing just about everything to make sure that it's ultimately clean. He says, when you're eating, 
cooking, you have eating utensils, bowls and pots and all these kind of things. Depending on the, syrup, the, the shape of that particular item will ultimately determine whether it's clean or not or whether it needs to be cleansed or not. For example, if there's a bowl, because it's got kind of those little curves in it and maybe a pot's got some curves, you know, some defiled stuff can kind of get in that little nook in that curve. So you need to make sure that not only washing your hands and your body, but you need to make sure that you're washing your dishes as well based on the particular form. If it's a plate, probably clean, don't worry about it. But if it's got a curve, wash that thing like crazy. But it didn't only stop at the shape, it also continued with the substance. What is it made of? You know, here are the people, right? Well, we got the shape, but what if it's made of some, you see how this is working? But what about the shape? How do we determine what, it, or what about um, what it's made of? And they said, well, here's a new group of laws. We know that clay really is, is kind of porous and it's got all these kind of little cracks in it. So that you want to really, really scrub well because some of that undefiled stuff could get lodged in there and you could drink it and you could become sinful as well and contaminated. But if it's metal, or if it's a harder surface like glass or stone or something like that, then you're good. You don't really have to wash that as much. So they have all these things. Now, let me tell you, if I was living, then I wouldn't do well. I'm the dishwasher of the home, and it's good enough for me to wash them one time, right? After we eat off them, not before and after, okay? But here they are with all these laws. And stop and think about this for a minute. God gave them one simple law for them to be able to follow, and a list of things they were not to touch so that they would remain clean before God. But now, once the Pharisees and their whole tradition has come together, now they have hundreds of laws that they're supposed to follow. Imagine trying to keep all of these laws. Hey, don't eat off that plate! Don't drink out of that cup, it hasn't been washed! Can you imagine the strain of trying to keep all of this stuff together? And so this is what these Pharisees are ultimately doing. But where is it that they get all these regulations? How did they come up with all these things? Where did they ultimately come from? Well, the Bible says here is this, and, and this is really bringing us to the real point of the message. See, the point here and the problem was not what was clean and what was unclean. That's not the issue. What's issue is the issue of authority. Who or what determines what is clean and what is unclean? And for the Jewish people, or for, for these Pharisees, they believed that it was, as Mark says, the tradition of the elders. In verse 5, the Pharisees used the phrase themselves. Verse 5, it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do, you, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, get this, two primary sources of authority for the Jewish people in the first century. There was the written law, and there was the oral law. The written law is basically in the, is what we know as the Torah. It consists of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So that was the law given to Moses by God that he ultimately recorded. But there was also the oral law. And the oral law was believed by the Jews, first century Jews, to be an unbroken chain of authorized oral traditions extending all the way back to Moses. Now, here's the difference between these two things. Later, that oral law will be known as the Mishnah when they finally kind of write it all down. Don't worry about that, just whatever. Then it becomes the Talmud. We won't go there. So let's just stay up here for a second. So what happens is they're different. The Torah, we know, really is filled with God's commands and God's decrees. It's basically a big book of theology of who God is, about what they should do, lots of commands, a lot of things that they should do. But it really kind of, at least for the people, lacked a lot of application. 
So the oral law came, uh, came right around that law, and it gave you and helped you work out how the application works. Does that make sense? So here's the truth. Now, how do we apply that? We do that every Sunday morning here. Here's the truth. I'm doing that now. Then at the end, I'll give you some more application. Now, here's kind of how it worked. It really worked as a fence around God's law to keep people from ultimately breaking God's law. Let me explain. It does two things. Helps you to apply it. Helps you to keep you from breaking God's law. Let me give you an illustration that was shared with me this last week. Um, Say that you went into a museum. Now, I know some of us, this is going to take a lot of imagination. Go to a museum, okay? But if we went to a museum and there was this wonderful, glorious picture up on there, just painting, beautiful painting. And we just so happened, instead of watching a Gator game or Seminole game or Bulldog game, we just decided that we were going to go to the art museum and look at this glorious painting. And underneath the painting, there is this etched out in a plaque that says, do not touch, right? So we see that, and, you know, and it's funny because we're looking at the painting for, you know, two minutes, three minutes, and there's no hankering at all to touch the painting until we see the plaque that says, do not touch the painting. Then all of a sudden, we're like, I wonder what the painting feels like, you know? And so the art museum people know this. They understand the nature of people. And so they sit there and say, you know, listen, if we're really going to keep people away from that, we need, a need, we need another buffer. We need something else. So what they have then is they have that little, you know, velvet rope, you know, the big rope thing. And they extend it about 15, you know, 10 feet out. And, and, and you can't get anywhere near it. And on those little ropes, it says, do not cross, Right? And so the idea is the only way you could possibly touch it is if your arms were like 10 feet long, then you might have a chance. But this really pushed you out far enough so that you couldn't break God's law. And that was how this, this, this Mishnah, this oral law, was intended to be able to help the people. So what I want you to understand is that this is not necessarily a bad thing. Because what it meant was the people were very, very serious about keeping God's law and doing the right thing. That's what they set out to do. They didn't want to do anything wrong. In fact, we do the same thing today to be able to help ourselves. Let me give you an example, a Pastor Mike example here. And it's like this. The Bible clearly says, do not commit adultery. Do not commit adultery. Well, let me tell you how I've kind of built a fence around here to try to kind of protect myself from that. Uh, how I protect myself is this. I've got a couple of rules. Number one, I, I don't counsel women alone. I just don't do it, never have, like in 20 years, every once in a while, you know, if she's old enough to be my grandmother or something, you know, we can maybe have a talk, but the door is open, my secretary's right out there, but almost always, I have my secretary, my wife, or someone else in there with me counseling another woman. Uh, here's another one. I don't get into a car with another woman that is not my wife. I just won't do it. There was a time that I spoke up in North Carolina. They asked me to come and speak, and they sent a very kind, wonderful lady to come and pick me up, and they were very put out when I told them they were going to have to send somebody else because I wasn't going to get in the car with them. And so an hour and a half later, disgruntled husband of wife comes and picks me up, and, you know, anyway, all water under the bridge. Here's the third thing that I haven't done. I, I don't have female buddies, Okay, I just don't have female buddies. I don't. Uh, my wife and I, when we first got married, we had to cut some relationships off. Uh, I was single. had a lot of girl friends, if you know what I mean, even for a long period of time. She had some boyfriends. And when we got married, here's what we said. No longer. And so we all had to sit down with them and we had to talk. Hey, listen, it's not that we can't be acquaintances, but you have to be acquaintances with me and my husband. We can't just, you know, I'm not going to call your wife and go, hey, what's up, girl? What's going on? How much? My husband's gone. Oh, yeah, my wife's gone. <laughs> How you, 
You know, it, no, I'm not, we're, you're not doing that, right? And, uh, and, and not stop by her. And so what I've done is I've taken those same things, and what we've done is, is, is I've tried to encourage other pastors to follow those, to say, hey, listen, this is a way that you can protect yourself. Because if you commit adultery, bro, not only might you be out of a marriage, but you might very well be out of a ministry. And I said, so you need to protect yourself. And so I've shared that with many young pastors and, and many young men who were getting married, right? To be able to protect them from those sorts of things. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. It's actually been helpful. But if I were at some particular point to begin to elevate my boundaries to God's command that thou shalt not commit adultery, and if I were to begin to say, hey, man, if you get into a car with another woman, you've committed adultery. Or if you've called a woman and talked with her before, then you've committed adultery. That's where things go radically wrong. Because what I've done is in order for me not to commit sin by building that hedge, in essence what I've done is I've just committed a completely different sin, the sin of idolatry, because I've committed that sin because what I've done is I've elevated my own opinions, my own desires, and my own boundaries at the same level as the word of God and require everybody else to hold to it. And if they don't hold to it, then they are guilty before God and not only me. So what I've done is I've elevated my word and my commands above God's words. You guys tracking with that? You got that? So what we see is this is precisely what they're ultimately doing, and Jesus addresses this in chapter in verse 6. He says, well, he says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. He says, that as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, he uses the word hypocrites. He's, he's quoting from Isaiah's prophecy. He calls them. He says, you're a bunch of hypocrites. We, none of us really tend to like that word. And it, we may not know the background or the history of that word. It's actually a Greek word that was taken from ancient Greek theater. You remember those pictures, the little mask, they would come out, and instead of you know, just acting, they would use these masks with a frown on it or a smiley face to try to demonstrate the nature of the character that they were ultimately um, portraying. And so what we find is that word eventually comes to mean someone or referred to someone who acts a role without sincerity, hence a pretender. Now, I want you to understand that Jesus is not saying that these people are not sincere. They're very sincere. They're very sold out to, to what it is that they believe. They're just seriously wrong in what they believe. And so what happens is he says that you are a hypocrite. Why? Because they're pretending to say we're all about God. We're all about God's laws. We're all about God's wills, will. We're all about his way. But in all actuality, they're not about God. They're about themselves. They're not about propagating God's laws. They're about propagating their own laws and their own beliefs and their own wants and their own cares. If, uh, if this makes any sense, make a move, movement, okay? All right, okay, you guys with me? So, so this is where they come guilty. Then Jesus gives an example of how all this works. He says, for Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Jesus quotes from the Old Testament Torah, from the first five books of the Bible. Those are two commands there. He says, but you say, here's the contrast, but you say, if a man tells his father and mother, whatever, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and much and many such things you do. All right, we gotta explain what in the world this whole Corbin business is, right? Well, in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 28, God gave a command. 
And basically, this is what he says. He says, but no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord. If you get up and say, this is to God. He says, of anything that he has, whether man or beast, or of his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. So here's what the command was. If you got up and said, hey man, it would be like this. Hey man, I'm going to give a tithe. God called me to give the tithe. I'm going to give the tithe. Here it is, placed in the offering plate. About two months later, you know, you're like, you know what? Kind of short a little bit this month. Uh, hey, listen, can, can I have that back? All right. Basically, what it's saying is, don't do that. Okay. Here's the point, though. Please understand. He says, what is committed to God is God's and must remain God's. It's not just talking about giving something. Later on in the New Testament, now catch the fulfillment of this. The fulfillment of it is we find in the book of Romans where it says, I beseech ye therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living, what? Sacrifice to God. So once we submit ourselves fully and completely to Jesus Christ, he's ours. There's no getting back of that. There's no taking, oh, God, I know I told you to give this, but I'm going to take a little bit of back. I know I gave part of myself. He says, no, what you give to God, you give fully. So here's what happens. They have to find a way to be able to apply this. So they came up with this idea of Corbin. And the idea of Corbin, simply, it just simply means offering. But here's what it ultimately became. It just became a type of deferred giving. So somebody, and people do this in the church all the time, at least the churches that I've pastored, uh, what they do is they'll sit there and maybe they're older and they've been a member there for a long time. And they say, we're going to die. I know in the next couple of years I'm probably going to die. And I want to leave something to the church. Maybe they have a house or they have some stocks or they have something. I've seen all different types of things. But what they do is they don't, you know, take the house from them. They let them live in the house. And then what they do is when they die, then that house is sold and the proceeds goes to the church for missions or for whatever it is that they determine it to, to go to. And so, so what happens is this is similar to what's happening, but things begin to get distorted. And here's how they get distorted. What it becomes is a way for you to disobey God. He says, and this is the example that he gives. He says, says there's a young, young man who was called of God to be able to honor his father and mother. In order to be able to do that, you better take care of your mom and dad. Amen? Mom and dads, right? Hey, I'm banking on it. I'm not banking on my retirement and everything else to be there for me. Guess what I'm banking on? Four kids. That's why we're going to have eight, right? I mean, we're going to have as many as we can. You guys, look, you thumb your nose up. Ha! Huh. We'll see, right? At least I've got a bunch of kids. And I, right, Bill Ray? Right? We're just, hey, man, I have no, this is, this is my retirement plan right here. Go to it, kids, right? And so he says, so what we do is to honor them, we honor them by taking care of them. And so the idea is, say you had a piece of property and they were in financial peril and you had a way to be able to help them. And so what you did was you, you could have sold the land and give it to them, but just say in your own selfish heart, you're like, I don't want to give it to my parents. I know they gave me life and took care of me and all those things, but I really, really enjoy this piece of property. And then what you could do is you could sit there and declare Corbin. I declare Corbin on all my possessions in my house. Then you would sit there and say, listen, mom and dad, I would love for you to be able to come and stay on the couch. I would love for that to be able to happen. But you know what? All of this is God's. And what is God's is God's. And I can't give or use to any other purpose except for that which is sacrificed to God. And he says, so what's happening here? He's able to use it. When he dies, he doesn't need it anymore anyway, but he can use it. He can be selfish. He can sin against God, break God's commandments, all because he exalted a man-made tradition above God's law. You got that? So here's where he's, so, so he goes through all this. He talks about this. Here's the bottom line. So the intention for the Jews to begin with was to build a fence to help them obey the law of God only to find themselves breaking it. Three points 
of application. Now, I don't always do it this way. Sometimes I give all the application in the middle of it, but it just worked out this way, okay? Three points of application. First of all, in light of all that we learn, we must be careful. We must be careful not to take our own traditions and to place them above the clear word of God. Now, let let me make very clear. Traditions in and of themselves, most of them, there's nothing wrong with. Right? We do and make traditions of all kinds of things. We have, and the reason is because uh, these traditions, they give people a great sense of security. They have a great sense of community. It can remind them of where they, where they are from. It can remind them of where they came, where they, uh, who they are. It can remind them of what they're all about. Traditions can be good. You know, we have traditions in our homes, right? There's certain things that we eat. There's certain things that we do. There's certain things and ways in which we've learned to raise our children, right? Uh, Certain things we won't let them do. It's things that we won't let them see or things that we will let them see. And all of those, in essence, are traditions that we as godly parents are placing within our lives to try to remain obedient to what God has called us to do. You, You following me so far? So we have traditions in our home. We have traditions in our church. Boy, do we have traditions in our church. And again, they're not all bad. Some of them are very good. We have traditions here. Did you know that we're worshiping? We have a 9 o'clock service, and I would love to invite some of you to come to the 9 o'clock service because we have two there, all right? And so it would help me if there was more there and we'd free up a little bit more space here. So please come to the 9 o'clock service. But the fact that we, week after week, meet at 9 and meet at 1045, that becomes a tradition for our church. The order of our service begins to become a tradition at our church, we're kind of used to everything. Song in the beginning, Brother Mike getting up, saying some stupid things, but then reading the Bible. We're going to go ahead and welcome each other. We're going to continue in three songs of worship. Mike's going to speak. Then we're going to have the offering. Do you see that? I mean, you could probably just say, now, is there anything inherently wrong with that? Don't say yes. No, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It's a tradition. We've got some other traditions. You know, at the very end of the year, two years in a row now, we've had a hoedown. All right? I mean, whoa, raise the roof. We got tradition going, right? So what happens is we've got all these kinds of traditions, but here's what begins to go wrong. When we take our traditions and they become so meaningful to us and so important to us, and we begin to take them and say, hey, listen, this is the right way to do things. This is the right way, the right way to raise your children. This is the right way to be able to lead a church. We used to do this at another church. This is the right way. It's the way we learn. And then you apply it and you make everybody else hold up to that particular standard That's where things go seriously wrong. You and I must be extremely careful not to exalt our opinions, our boundaries above the law of God. Let the Bible say what it says, but be silent where it's silent. You can work with each other in application, but you cannot hold, we cannot hold each other to it as the same level as the word of God. Y'all with me? Number two, we must be patient. We must be patient with one another as we seek to free ourselves from the spirit of traditionalism. Here's the difficulty. A lot of you, some of you have been saved in this church. Some of you have come from other churches. Guess what? You have a whole completely different way of doing things at your previous church. In fact, when you first walked in, you're like, hmm, only two people at the door. <laughs> we had four at our last one. Something's kind of jacked up here. And so what has to happen is you and I, loving each other in a community, we have to really, really be patient with one another. We'll just sit back and say, hey, brother, you know, I, I, was, I was like that too. And, you know, I've, I've had that same thing. I've, I've dealt with those same kind of emotions. Let me, let me just give you a couple things. 
Because if we begin to judge each other based on those exterior boundaries and not on the word of God, we're in trouble. Let me give you just some very quick examples of this. You, you guys still good? Okay, very quick. So somebody, you know, people, especially when we first built the building, you know, every, everybody was excited. You know, people in the community, yeah, I've been looking at that church, thought about going for you for the last 10 years, but now you got a building, so I'm still thinking about it, you know? So they kind of come in, and they say, hey, can we look at your church? Remember this, Joyce? Can we look at your church? We kind of usher them in, and they walk, and I remember one particular lady, she looks up, and she looks up here, and she goes, ah! and I thought, where's that? You know, are, are you okay? What's happening? I don't know what's happening. And she goes, well, there's a, thing, it's a few things that I can tell you right off the bat, it's clear of your church. I said, well, what? You know, I'm looking around trying to figure out, well, you know, did somebody leave something out? You know, what's going on? And, and she, says, she says, apparently you do not hold the preaching of God's word to a high position. It sounded very spiritual, actually. And so, so I, I'm looking, and I can't tell what that is. And she says, if you did, you would have a wood podium. Wood podiums are for people. That new plexiglass thingy, that's for just newfangled, non-preaching people. It's got to be wood, right? And, and, you know, then you just thought, you know, what do you say? You know, you just, okay, ours is being repaired. You know, I, I don't know what to do. We'll get it right up there. Another gentleman, who came in, and, and, and here, he, he wants to look, and he goes, you know, he visited, and I could tell he was kind of angry. Believe it or not, I can see you. <laughs> I know you don't believe it, but I could see him, and he looked disgruntled through the whole service, and afterwards, I talked to him, and he goes, he goes look, man, what you said and everything was great. I, I didn't see anything really wrong with it. If you're always listening for everything that's wrong, you're never going to hear anything that's right. I'm just telling you. You need to be, you need to be discerning, all right? Don't just, oh, yeah. I mean, use your mind. But be positive. And so here's what happens afterwards. He goes, there's a problem though. He goes, I want to know one thing. I'll never come back. He goes, unless you put a cross up. Where's your cross in your worship center? I sat there and to be honest with you, it was one of the first times I realized that we just didn't have a cross up. But to be honest with you, this is how I responded. I said, sir, I said, you know, I guess, I guess the word of God never said for us to put a cross up in our worship service what it told us to do is to deny ourselves, pick up the cross, and follow Jesus. So we're spending more time dying to ourselves and picking up the execution tool of the cross so that we would glorify God in all that we say or do. Well, that's nice, but where's your cross? Oh, geez. You know, here we go. So that's some. Let me give you one more example. You guys like examples. Okay, here you go. I'm spoiling you today. Here's another example. I had somebody just a little while ago, and if they're here, I love you. Um, but here's what happens. They come, and I wasn't preaching this particular Sunday, and I contact them afterwards during the week and say, uh, several did, and I said, hey, listen, love to be able to meet you. Can I tell you anything about our church? And they said, no, uh, you know, we might be back. Um, you know, and right then, you're like, Pfft. you know, we love you, you know. But I always say, hey, look, we're not trying to get you to come and join a church. Please especially if you're disgruntled. Uh, we're not trying to get you to come and be disgruntled around us. But here's the idea is, is there might be another church that kind of fits you a little bit better, one that you'd be more happy with. Maybe you could tell me what you're looking for, and I can kind of stick you somewhere, and hopefully the pastor doesn't find out if it's a bad fit. But, but just try to help them with that. And as we're talking, they go, well, listen, we might give you kind of another chance. They go, they go um, I'll tell you what, um, next week we'll just come back um, you know, we'll just come back and, and visit with you. I'm like, okay. So I gave my number and everything. So I get this text. And the first text basically says, hey, listen, uh, we'd really like to come to your Sunday night service. Can you tell us what time it starts? 
Oh, man. Hmm. Sorry. Um, we don't have a Sunday night service, but we do have some small groups that kind of meet during that time. I'm sorry about that. Oh, no, 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 no problem. You know, it comes back. Okay. But about a week or so later. Okay, we thought about giving you guys another try, and we wanted to be able to come and hear you preach this time. Uh, we'd really love to be able to come to your Sunday school. So sorry, uh, we don't have a Sunday school. We do have small groups through the week. Okay, and then, and then here was kind of the third text. This was like two weeks later. We'd really love to come to your midweek service. Oh, yeah. I am so incredibly sorry to inform you that we do not have a midweek Wednesday regular service. We do have small groups that meet, however, and we would love to be able to help you in any other way. Well, it was funny because I kept kind of meeting the folks and seeing them, you know, and everything, and it was kind of one of these, oh, there he is, you know, just kind of walked the other way. Well, here was the, here was the nail in the coffin. We're up, and, and, and I see them in Walmart, and it was, it was a Sunday afternoon, and, and, uh, and I see them again, and they go, hey, listen, um, it's good to see you. We've been wanting to see you. And I said, hey, did you guys ever find a church? They said, yes. And it was the perfect church for them. I was like, I'm so glad you're going there. That's the one I would have you know, suggested. You'd feel right at home there, no doubt. And so they, they turn and they, just, they, they kind of said, well, listen, we know that you don't have Sunday night service. So we would like to invite you to our service on Sunday night. <laughs> they go, we're having kind of like a singing extravaganza a fifth Sunday type sing that we do at our church. Now, if you know me, you know that I would rather pluck out my eye than to sit through something like that, okay? And so, but then I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh no. Now, you have to understand I have a buggy and in the buggy, I have a 50 pound bag of corn, deer corn. And I said, you know, I really can't be there. And she says, but why? You don't have church on Sunday night. And I said, yeah, but... I promised that I would take my two kids hunting tonight. And do you see how that all goes? And then the expression was basically, we need to pray for him. (laughs) There's no way he can be saved. There's no way he can know Jesus. There's no way. I know that at that church, I am on their prayer list somewhere. (laughs) Pray for the salvation of the pastor of celebration. I know that I've got to be on that list somewhere. And so these are the things that ultimately happen. And so what I, what, what I want you to know and I want you to understand here is that we've, we've, we've got to be careful, but we also have to be patient with each other because we all come together, many of us, from different kind of ideas and different kind of backgrounds. Do you see that? Like, like we came to, from certain churches that dress a certain way. We come from different churches that, that, that preach a certain way and have different types, some Sunday school, some small group, all these different types of things. But here's the big deal. How those are just different ways in which people have to determine to fulfill what God has called us to. It's not as though one is inherently right and the others are inherently evil. And so sometimes when folks come to celebration, and look, nothing wrong with those things. I grew up that way. If God ever leaves me here, he may take me to a church like that. I don't know what the deal is. I don't have anything against those things. But here's the point is, we have to be very, very careful. And we have to be very, very patient with each other, to walk through. Everybody makes such a big deal about dress, and I, and I get that. And people will say, hey, you just want to give God your very best. Hey, I get that. But I can let you know very clearly through the word of God, I can give you much more biblical uh, uh, um, teaching where it says that God does not look at the outward appearance of man. 
but he looks at the inward heart. God wants us to be dressed up inside, not merely outside. Now, here's the thing. Look, 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 look. Let me tell you this. But if you feel comfortable in the tie, my brother, you feel comfortable in the tie, right? I know him very well. That's why I can do this. All right? And the point is, wear a tie. It's awesome. Praise God. Here's the point. You got two sides. You got to be dressed up. Then there's another side that has rebelled against all that. And here's the other side. You don't got to dress up, go to church. You don't got to dress up. So what they do is they, you know, kind of wear, you know, the little loafers, little leather loafers, little tight skinny jean pants, you know. And then they got, you know, the big collared shirt and it's all buttoned down. And they're like, man, I'm not going to dress up. This is it. And so what they do, though, is they build a whole nother culture. Here's the thing. We don't care what you wear, man. Just wear something. Just wear something. Wear sackcloth. I don't care where to just be covered. Okay, that kind of thing. Here's the thing. There's too much important to talk about and to deal with than what somebody should or should not wear. Just walk before God and just let's learn about him and get in here and forget about that nonsense. You, you, you guys tracking with me? Say amen. Okay, here's the third thing. Now, all that seems so nice, and this is where it doesn't sound as nice, so just bear with me. We, we must be clear. We must be clear. And here's what I mean by that. We must be clear that the elders of Celebration Baptist Church will not be pressured by any single uh, individual at Celebration who comes to impose their tradition to force the church in another direction. Okay. Some people, when they go to a church, this church or anywhere else, what they will do, this is how they pick churches, just like they pick their spouse. They do is they look, and there's some things that are very attractive to them about that person. I remember seeing my wife. I don't know what she saw in me, but I was attracted to her. And I remember sitting there going, you know, she's, she's fine. She looks, she looks good, especially for me, <laughs> balding, short guy. And so I go and begin, you know, to see her and everything. And this is what we do. We see all these wonderful things we like, but we see a few things that we just have a problem with. Just a few things that aren't quite right there. So what we do, here's the plan. I'm going to marry him for all these good things. But when I get in there and finally just have some time, then over a period of time, I'll show her the errors of her ways, and she'll end up changing. That is how many people come and are a part of a local church. When they come, they sit there and go, I see some things I like. But Pastor Mike and all the elders of the church really don't know what in the world that they're doing. I'm going to get in there, and I'm going to show them once I get in there, and I'm going to try to change things. Here's what you need to understand. I'm just telling you this because here's the point. We want to be open with each other, right? There's a lot of first-time guests here. You need to know what you're getting into if you want to come. And here's, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like, imagine marrying your spouse and all of a sudden, hey, there's something I've been wanting to show you. And then all of a sudden, another head pops up. I kind of kept this before you. Okay, I don't, want to, I don't want to do that. I want you to know what's happening and, and, and be very, very clear so that you understand. You need to understand here at Celebration that... We are doing what we believe that God has called us to do. We are leading for a specific reason. It's not one person. It's a plurality of elders trying to leave the church. And here's the point is, you don't have to come here. If there's another place where there are things that are far more important, go there. But if you are about Jesus, if you are about missions, if you are about discipleship, if you are about equipping and being equipped to be the man of God and the woman of God and to lead your kids in the admonition of Jesus Christ, and if you want to be equipped through the whole counsel of the word of God to rightly divide the word of truth and to exalt Christ, then man, let's just come together. 
Because here's what I don't want you to say, because this happens at every church, including this church that I've been in. There are people who don't like certain things. We don't like the music. Then don't join. I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm saying this for your own good, because every Sunday that the music comes on, you're going to be cantankerous. You're going to be upset, and you're going to want to change things. And if you continue to want to change things, you will be guilty of sin. And the sin that you will be guilty of is that you will be, sin of a, you will be guilty of the sin that God hates, sowing discord amongst the brethren. Some people have come up and they said, listen, you need to change the way. Look, look, where are all of your deacons? You're supposed to have a deacon board. And if, that's not how the Bible says that a church ought to function. Not led by a group of deacons that are unqualified to be able to lead the church. Their place is to be able to serve. But hear me very clearly. And if you have a problem with this, please come and talk with me. Because I will show you the error of your ways. Most of the ways that we do church Government is not ascribed to the word of God. It is ascribed to Baptistic tradition. And not all Baptistic tradition. When you move further back, if you would do some information, you would find very clearly that they were very on according to the word of God. But over a period of time, they began to go to a plurality of deacons telling the elders what to do. It's unbiblical. And let me tell you something. You cannot tell me that God will bless a church that's wrong at its very foundation. And that's why there are so many churches, guys, and I'm not picking on anybody, I'm just, is it okay that we're open? But it's why there's so many churches in so much turmoil, because they have mankind and man's tradition as their authority, rather than the authority of the word of God. And so we will just simply say, and I want to make sure, that here's a, here's a warning shot about, uh, uh, across the Bible. We try to tell people, try to lead them. But if there is a persistence in trying to, to cause disruption within this church. I love you, the, the, the staff loves you, the elders love you too much to allow that kind of poison to infiltrate Celebration Baptist Church. Now, it's always open for suggestions. It's always open. Look, sometimes people come and they say, we got to be able to do these other things. But let me tell you, that's just one example. But I want to tell you is, whether it's in your home, whether it's in your own personal life, or whether it's in the local church, The word of God must be the authority. Now let me finish something with you just very quickly. And here it is. The last question I have for you this morning is this. Are you suffering from being a hypocrite this morning? That's where I left it this morning, where God left me this morning and and, and at the end of studying last Thursday. When I shut this, I sat there and said, God, it's so easy to be a hypocrite, isn't it? so easy, at least from an outward appearance, to be so driven and be so about God, but really inward, I'm only about myself and getting what I ultimately want. And how many times have we who have been in church for a long period of time have been able to sit there, and even though we know that our hearts are not right within us, that there's sin dwelling within us, that we're not right with God, how we've been able to just cover that up by religious talk and theological speech and biblical speech to throw people off the track, but things really aren't right in our hearts before God. And today is a time and a moment for you to get right with God. Today is a moment for you to be able to sit, for some of you to come to faith in God, to repent of your sins, and place your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. I'd love to talk to you more about that. We've got a room. We'll shuttle you out. We'll talk with you. Make sure that you understand the gospel. But for some of us, we just need to get our hearts right this morning. Say, God, we are not where we ought to be. And may this morning be a day that we just repent and get right before him. I'm going to ask you to please stand to your feet and we're going to pray as our musicians.